Now, Eli sees her, and sees her lips moving, but no words coming out, and he immediately assumes that she's drunk. And then he calls her a wicked woman, or a son of Belial. Belial is a Hebrew word that means wickedness, and actually comes from a word referring to a female demon in that culture. And it's going to be a word, a son of Belial, is going to be a phrase used all throughout Samuel and into the next books as well. And it's basically a wicked person that is so wicked and so evil that are almost demonic. And that's what he calls her. Can you imagine walking in your church and you're praying in the pew and your pastor comes up to you and says, like, what are you, drunk, you wicked, demonic person? You're like, whoa, you've seriously misread this situation. Now, here's the thing. How is it that a priest sitting in the tabernacle doesn't automatically, first thought comes to his mind that they're praying? Okay, maybe if they're sitting in the gutter outside of a bar, you might think they're a little crazy or drunk. But when you're in your church, sitting in your pew, and your mouth is moving but no words are coming out, an intelligent pastor would automatically assume they're probably praying because we're in the church. And yet Eli, so what we're doing is we're introduced to Eli who's spiritually blind. He's out of touch. And in fact, later we're going to be told that he's becoming physically blind as well. And so Eli is oblivious, he's, he's, he's lazy, he's sitting in the chair, he's looking around, and he misreads the situation completely and accuses her of being a demonic, evil woman. And she immediately protests and says, No. But Hannah replied, That's not the way it is, my lord. I am under a great deal of stress. I have drunk neither wine nor beer. Rather, I have poured out my soul to Yahweh. Don't consider your servant a wicked woman, for until now I have spoken from my deep pain and anguish. So she's even misunderstood by her own priest. Her husband, her priest, the culture, everything. Eli replied, Go in peace, and may God of Israel grant your request that you've asked of him. Did he ever consult God? Does he even know what her request is? And his immediate response is, Go in peace. God has granted your request. He has no power, no authority to say that. He has not consulted God. He doesn't even know what her request is, and yet he grants it. That's what we saw in the book of Judges. With the last priest in the book of Judges, the Danites said, we're going up to a village, and we're going to kill all these innocent people and take their village away from them. And the Levite says, go in peace. God is with you. You'll have victory. Eli is just like that last priest, and he's just like the last judge, corrupt self full of himself and pride and all that kind of stuff. And this is the guy who's sitting in the chair ruling over Israel right now. Already the narrator is saying something is going to happen to him. Verse 19, they got up early the next morning and after worshiping Yahweh, they returned to their home in Ramah. Elkanah had marital relations with his wife, Hannah, and Yahweh remembered her. And after some time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel thinking, I asked of Yahweh for him. Now this is important. She goes home and it says, God remembered her. Now that remember word does not mean God's like, oh, I forgot about her. That's right, she prayed. I got to get on that prayer request. <laughs> That's not what it means. This is covenantal language. The word remembered is covenantal language. And and what it means is God remembered his promise to her. Now you're like, what promise did God make to her? 
the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 27 and 28, God specifically said, If you submit to me, and you surrender to my will, and you pursue me with all of your heart, with all of your life, and all of your everything, then I will open the gates of heaven and blessings on you. You will have children, your crops will be fertile, you'll have an abundant number of them all. And so God made a very specific promise to Israel that if you do this, this will happen. And so she has surrendered herself, humbled herself. She's made it clear that God is her king and her true king. And she has obeyed him. And God has remembered his covenant promises to his people. Which means the word remember means he's going to act upon it. He's going into action. And he's going to put into action what he promised in the covenant. Because she did it. It doesn't say anything about her being perfect. It doesn't say anything about her being this obedient woman in every kind of a way. What we see is a woman who has humbled herself before Yahweh, given her heart and everything to him, and God is saying, I'm going to give you a good covenant promise. And this is your first example. And notice that the book does not begin with a man. The book does not begin with a king. The book begins with a very marginalized, humble woman as the prototype and the example of what it means to be a woman or a man after God's own heart. She is not perfect. Her family situation is not ideal in any kind of a way. Her culture is jacked up. Yet despite that, she has made Yahweh her king. And she has placed her life in his hands. And God is putting into action his covenant promises. Because Deuteronomy ultimately said, I know that you will never be completely obedient, but if you give your heart to me, then I will give you blessings. And that's what she's doing. And just like the book of Exodus begins with women as the heroes, not men, the book of Joshua begins with women, the book of Judges, we're seeing the same thing here. And so Hannah becomes the prototype, the example of what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, despite oppression, suffering, marginalization in the culture. Notice, too, that she didn't start a woman, a right, a movement, to seize back power and to take it all. Okay? She surrendered herself to God. And God did not make her life this amazing, awesome, powerful life over the culture. He blessed her. She is the shining example of a feminine character. Someone who ultimately submits to Yahweh. So she has a child, and she names him Samuel. There is going to be a word that's going to be repeated over and over again in the book of Samuel, and it's the Hebrew word Sha'al. S-H-A-A-L. Sha'al. Sha'al means to ask. And Sha'al is going to be a repeating phrase all throughout the, this, this book, and it's going to be a pun that's going to be used. And one of the first places you see it is in Samuel's name. Now, Samuel's name doesn't literally come from the word Sha'al. And Samuel's name doesn't literally mean because I asked God. Because it doesn't. It's a different Hebrew word. But it's a pun. A lot of times in the Bible, God will not only use a word to communicate a meaning, but he'll pick a word that sounds like another word communicate that meaning as well like s-u-n and s-o-n they sound the same but they're completely two different definitions 
But you can do a lot of plays and words there, even with like Jesus. Jesus is the son, but the son is powerful, amazing, that kind of stuff. So there's puns you can play. So Samuel's name is not etymology means he asks. It sounds like phonetically in a pun, he asks. And the word El means God. So it's I asked of God. So just like Manoah named wife, named her son, one like the sun God, Hannah is naming her son, I asked of Yahweh and he gave to me. And there's a very honoring thing here. And where you're also going to see this word showing up over and over again is ultimately the people are going to shut all of Yahweh a king. And God is going to give them Saul, who comes from the Hebrew word Sha'al, meaning the one asked for. Now what we have is we have Hannah, who humbly presents herself before Yahweh, surrenders to his kingship, and she asks, and God gives her a blessing that's going to be a blessing to her and the entire nation. Samuel, because I asked and God gave. The nations in chapter 8, or Israel, is going to ask for a king that's like all the other nations and not like a king that God wants. And they're going to ask for that, and God is going to give them exactly what they asked for, and his name is going to be Asked, Saul. And he's going to end up exactly like a king like all the other nations, a tyrant. And in this way, God will give you exactly what you asked for. <laughs> and in some ways, the lesson's being taught, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. And what the difference is those who humble. When she humbled herself, she got blessings. When the Israel said, we want, give it to us now, because we're in power, then God gave them consequences and judgments. And this is where you see Deuteronomy happening, because Deuteronomy chapter 7, 27 says, if you submit and humble yourself, then I will open the floodgates of heaven and blessings. But if you make yourself your own God or go after other gods, then I will bring these cursings. And this is why it's called a Deuteronomic history. Because we're going to see this in Hannah, the blessings, and we're going to see this in the people and Saul, the curses. God will be true to his promises, both good and bad. See, we often think God is faithful to his promises, but we forget that some of his promises are also judgments for sin. And if you want God to be faithful to his promises and the good things, you also have to want him to be faithful in the, the judgments. And he is faithful in both ways. And so this is Hannah. Verse 21. The man Elkanah went up with all of his family to make the yearly sacrifice to Yahweh and to keep his vow. But Hannah did not go up with them. Instead, she told her husband, Once the boy is weaned, I will bring him and appear before Yahweh, and he will remain there from then on. Now, already the narrator is creating some suspension because, um, suspension because now you're like, oh, wait a minute, is she not going to honor this promise? The boy is born? And now she's like, yeah, but when he's weaned, then I'll, I'll give it to him. So the immediate in you is thinking, oh, is she going to have an excuse next year? And have an excuse the next year? Now, what does it mean to be weaned? To be weaned means no longer being breastfed. Now, you have to understand, this is going to weird some of you out. But the average age of stop weaning people in the ancient world was anywhere between three and six years old. You think that's a little weird because we're Americans and all that stuff makes us weird and uncomfortable. But it's not weird because think about it. In the ancient world where you eat way less than what we eat today 
And the question is not like, oh, what are we going to have tonight? The question is, are we going to have something to eat tonight? You don't know where your next meal might come from. And so you can either do one of two things. The infant mortality rate of children was incredibly high. Many, many, many children did not make it to the age of four or six years old just because they had no, they had no penicillin, none of that kind of stuff. They died of disease. They died in childbirth. And a lot of times mothers would not even name their children until they hit four years old because they didn't want to, if you name it, you're going to get even more emotionally attached and then you're going to lose it. Many, many families will lose at least three or four kids by the, before they hit even the age of four years old. Either they were born dead or they died of some kind of just the flu or something very common to us that we don't even think about before they hit the age of four years old. Th that, that was their culture. So you can do one, two things. You can either, in a time period where there's lots of diseases and starvation, you can either take some of your food and divide it and give it to your baby and you and your other kids and stuff, or you can give them breast milk, which is free. So you can either feed your kid on breast milk for three, four, five years and not have to take extra food from your crops and your family to give to this kid that might not even survive. It's free food. And not only that, we now know that the mother's milk is the kid's immune system. Kids are born without immune system. And kids who, and this is not a judgment comment, but kids who are on breast milk versus formula are a lot healthier because formula does not bring an immune system. But the mother's breast milk, she has spent her entire life building immunity to everything around her in the culture. And when she does it, she passes that immune system to the baby. If you take your baby off the milk and put them on regular food, they're not getting that extra boost of immune system. So this isn't like a weird you out kind of a thing. This is absolute survival. That's why you don't wean your kids until four or six years old, because it has everything to do with survival of your kid. Not because, well, I, that's just I'm going to be you can I'm going to be a unique and different, <laughs> which is why a lot of people do it today. Then what's also interesting is we now know a psychologist, not that I'm a psychologist, but psychologists have said that boys typically will emotionally disconnect themselves from their mothers at the age of six. And they'll emotionally connect themselves to their dad because they're a boy. And they need, now they'll always want mom and they'll always be, but they won't have that extra closeness anymore because they need to know what it's like to be a male. Women typically don't disconnect themselves from their mothers until they're 13 or 14. That's why you, you wonder what happened to your daughter when she turned 13 or 14 years old. So this is also the time where it will be less psychologically damaging to him or emotionally damaging for him to be separated from his mother until he's four or six years old. So it's not just I'm going to hold on to him longer. There's a lot of wisdom and waiting until he's weaned to give him to the tabernacle. And Eli is not prepared for raising a baby. <laughs> so, so this isn't a woman who's giving excuses. This is a woman who's thinking very practical. My kid is not emotionally, physically, immune system ready to be separated until he's six. And the temple, the tabernacle, can't even handle him until he's about six years old, where he can actually be a productive hands in the tabernacle. And so she waits. So her husband, verse 23, Elikana, said to her, Do what you think is best. Stay until you have weaned him. May Yahweh fulfill your promise. Now we see a husband who's a little bit more on board. 
We see that he's actually okay with her vow because the husband, according to Deuteronomy, had every right to trump the vow of his wife if he felt like it wasn't good for the family. And yet he hasn't done away with it. He didn't say, no, 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 I'm not going to honor that vow. At the same time, he's not saying, oh, no, 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 you're giving excuses, woman. He says, fine, do, do what you think is right. You're the mother. You made the vow. What is ever best, I'll back you up and follow you on that. And so now we see a husband who's a little bit more supportive. He's not insensitive in every area. So the woman stayed and nursed her son until she was weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with three bowls, an ephah of flour. Now she's sacrificing three bowls. This is like buying three Lamborghinis and smashing it with a sledgehammer. Okay, we're talking about wealth. But we're also, what's really important to understand is Hannah doesn't have to sacrifice a bowl for her son. You see, when you give your son to the tabernacle, and you see, when we do baby dedications in our church too, but baby dedications in the ancient world, according to the law, meant that you also had to sacrifice animals. But the law never required a bull to be sacrificed for a child who's being dedicated to God, let alone three. So we're talking about extreme wealth. But we're also talking about a woman who gets the sacrificial system. Because remember, like, if, if, if I took a hundred bucks and put it in the offering plate, like, every week, that's going to be a huge sacrifice for me financially. But if Bill Gates put a hundred bucks in the offering plate every week, that's not a sacrifice. It's a tithe. And the church is going to be like, woo, but it's not a sacrifice. And so the reality is, Hannah gets that if she's wealthy, then her sacrifice must be greater than what the laws require. Because sacrifice without sacrifice is not a sacrifice. If you're making a sacrifice, then it's not really a truly a sacrifice on your life. It's not hurting you. Then it's not a real sacrifice. And that's important to understand that that shows you the heart of Hannah as well. Because she just could do the bare minimum of what the law required. And for her, it would be like flipping a quarter into the offering plate. But I obey the law. But she's not interested in obeying the letter of the law. She's not interested in obeying what laws, the laws ask. And that's her heart and her sacrifice. And so she's sacrificing a huge sacrifice to Yahweh, which shows you that not only... And it's important to understand that it says... It does not say that she went to the tabernacle with her sacrifice. And then she dedicated her son. It says she went to the tabernacle with her sacrifice and her son. Meaning that she has every intention to give her son on that day as well. And she's sacrificing not just these animals, but she is sacrificing her son as well. Not in a literal physical death kind of a sense, but in a, I'm giving my son over to God. Now, remember, she's going to make regular visits to the tabernacle, which means she's still going to be involved in her son's life, but still, that's going to hurt a mother emotionally. But she knew exactly what she was saying when she prayed, and she's sticking with it. And where other people have not honored their vows in the book of Judges, she is. And she's true to it. So the woman stayed, and once she had weaned him, she took him with her along with the, on the bowl, ephah, and the flour and the container, wine, and she brought him to Yahweh's house at Shiloh, even though he was young. Once the bowl had been slaughtered, they brought the boy to Eli. She said, Just as surely as you are alive, my Lord, 
I am a woman who previously stood here with you in order to pray to Yahweh, and I prayed for this boy, and Yahweh was given to me in the request that I asked of him. Now I dedicate him to Yahweh. From this time on, he is dedicated to Yahweh. And then they worshipped Yahweh there. 